I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, producer Jonah Primo here and welcome to Principle of Charity, where we inject curiosity and generosity back into our conversations on big social issues. This is part two of our conversation on whether or not we should be thin. In part one, our host, Emil Sherman, really teased out that question with the guests, and now Lloyd takes them onto the couch to ask some personal and tricky questions. As always, I recommend listening to part one first. It'll just help provide some context for the conversation. Enjoy. Helen and Tigress, thank you so much for that conversation with Emil. This part of the podcast is what we call on the couch, where we explore the principle of charity, but equally some of the culture of the organizations you, you belong in and some other cultural issues related to the principle of charity. Helen, in, in the last part of the conversation with, uh, with Emil and Tigress, you mentioned that some of fat activism can make it hard for, and you were really talking also about yourself, for medical practitioners to diagnose, to treat. And I, I really want to do, Tigris, I probably didn't hear your response to that. And I thought you probably did want to respond to that. Did, did you want to respond to some of Helen's statements on that? I mean, I just, I, I don't see the evidence that medical practitioners are feeling like they're no longer allowed to talk to people about weight loss in the medical space. Like we hear constantly about people going into the medical space and not being able to get their doctors to talk about anything else. I think that may be true for individual practitioners, especially those who are really thoughtful and want to be more sensitive. Uh, but I still think across the board that the medical profession feels really, really empowered to tell people that they need to lose weight anytime they want to. You know, we start most medical appointments with a weigh-in. So from the beginning, mm. we are collecting, you know, we would say BMI surveillance. Um, we are collecting BMI information, whether it's relevant to the particular reason for the appointment or not. Mm. Um, and we know we can practice medicine without doing that because during the pandemic, when we had to see people virtually, we were not having them weigh themselves at home and report their BMI before we talked to them about mm. their earache, their headache, their sore elbow, their whatever, right? So we know that there's another way to do it. In my own conversations with the physicians that I work with, I'm always very clear. At a personal level or from a sort of activist at, level? At a personal level, I'm very clear yeah. with mm -hmm. any medical practitioner that I work with. If it's actually related to weight, I want you to talk to me about the how and why of that. I'm not going to just take at face value that this is the thing you're saying is happening is happening because I'm 
let's talk about where like what that what's the research what's the what what's the correlation what is you know how high is the risk factor like what do i need to think about because that is informed consent i don't want medical practitioners who never mention weight in any way i want medical practitioners who don't assume weight is the problem and who talk to me like i am an intelligent adult who can understand risk factors and correlations instead of like i just won't get all that complicated medical stuff i'll just you know i just need to lose weight right that's what i want but you know do you think that medical practitioners let's just take their context for a moment they're busy they've they've got lots of patients i've been very ill myself and i had the you know I also wanted to know things and I felt rushed. Yeah. Do you think, if we, and certainly when I push back, I'd always go, well, if I push back on certain issues on my health and I ask certain questions, I know I've got 15 minutes here, will I you know, get them on my side? Will they want to see me? How hard are they trying? Do you think just those type of questions sometimes are seen for good or bad reason by the medical practitioner as negative, this is all too hard. And basically, you know, let me move on. And so you don't always get the best advice. Yeah, it's easier. I mean, lose weight is a shortcut prescription that, you know, like, because there's a sort of everybody knows that stands behind it. That, you know, that most patients are not me. Most patients are not doing that kind of pushback all the Mm -hmm. time when it's lose weight. They're doing like, yeah, you're probably right. I probably should. And so it's easy Mm -hmm. to check that one off. And also, I know this is different in different places, but here in the U.S., it's actually often a requirement by insurance to check it off, that you had to have mm-hmm. talked to them about weight loss if they're over a certain BMI or mm-hmm. or you're considered negligent. Yeah, so it's, it's super complicated. It's a big systemic issue that's beyond just what individual doctors feel and the pressures that they feel. And it, you know, and it does require big systemic change in terms of how we approach patient and doctor care. That's a capitalism problem. That's bigger right. than what we're talking about yeah. today, okay. for sure. But yeah. at a minimum, I would say, like, I am much more c- concerned about protecting fat people from misdiagnosis because everything is blamed on weight than I am concerned yeah. about protecting physicians from the discomfort of mentioning weight. Yeah. I'm, I'm not offended because I know that that's what they've been trained to do. And most of them have not been exposed to concepts like health at every size. They've just been trained to mm-hmm. weigh patients. But I also don't experience it anymore because I don't allow myself to be weighed at the beginning of appointments anymore. Um, Like many fat activists and many just people who don't identify as fat activists, but just have learned this from fat activists and other advocates, I just decline to be weighed unless it's actually medically necessary. So if you need my weight for prescription dosing or you need my weight to, you know, to track water retention for for some reason or like there are a few reasons why you might need my weight but you don't need it at the beginning of the appointment in most cases Mm -hmm. so we can talk about whatever i'm here for and then if you need my weight i'll get on the scale but if you don't i'm going to leave here without you weighing me let's get back to one of the core goals of this podcast which is the principle of charity and trying to understand the alternative view that doesn't mean we agree but trying to understand the alternative view in order to have much more constructive debate and hopefully, you know, get closer to the truth. So Helen, I'm going to start with you. You know, the title of, of, of this podcast is should we aim to be thinner? You know, you, you, you've, you've argued against some of the issues around fat activism and some of your concerns, but let me ask you, what are the top three arguments for why everyone should just stop worrying about weight? and eat what they want. 
there's only um, one argument for for that, and and that's because it it's a personal decision. You you decide whether or not you are going to factor your diet how you how you approach the the issue of diet if if you prefer to just eat whatever you want rather than trying to sort of balance nutrition in any way then you just have have the right to do that i think it, if we sort of broaden that that out a little bit then we could say people that if if you are somebody who who is just not who, who is not going to try to um, reduce their their calorific intake. They just decide I'm just not doing that. Then there's um, other things that they can do to you know reduce the the risk of, of heart problem, heart disease and so so that that is something. You know, exercising can make a, a huge difference more than losing a, a few pounds. Tigress, I'm going to go to you also on the principle of charity, and I'm very aware, obviously, trying to look at the alternative to NAFA and the argument. Again, what we're trying to do is look at the alternative. Could you summarize what you think are the top three arguments for why people who are fat should, on the whole, aim to be thinner? I certainly think that that Helen would fairly concede that there is some research that shows that fat doesn't correlate the way that we think it does or doesn't cause what we think it does. But I also think that she would say that, you know, on the whole, the research picture is clear that it is mm. unhealthy to be fat. And in order to take good care of yourself, you should try to be losing weight. Uh, mm. So I think that's the 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 first reason you should try to be thinner, uh, according to folks on the other side. I think that uh, this didn't come up from from Helen, but I think folks on the other side regularly talk about the resources that are wasted by obesity, the the economic cost of obesity. And I have counterpoints Mm -hmm. to that, but I know that's not what I'm supposed to do right now. But I definitely know that that is part of the argument that is made from the other side, that it's a tremendous strain on the system to take care of fat people. And then finally, I think folks on the other side do say that, you know, people are attracted to what they're attracted to. It's just a fact that fat people are not as attractive. And therefore, if you care about being more attractive to more of the human population, then you should change your body to do that. And then you'll be happier. I thought that was a a pretty good summary. Thank you. I want to talk to both of you around, in many ways, you know, Tigris, you, you, you are an activist, you're part of a organization. Helen, in some ways, when I look at your videos, you've become somewhat, I would argue, an activist against what you would call postmodern thought, the restriction on liberal views. I'm definitely a, a political activist. Yes, I'm. I'm a left uh, liberal of um, sort of socialist informed rather than identity based um, informed. When you think about your activism and your strong views. What do you think could make you a better listener to the alternative view? In this case, some of the more left-wing views around cancel culture and shaming and, and restriction of thought. What, what, what do you think personally can make Helen a better listener? I think I am quite a good listener. I, I, I call this ideological theory of mind. I often present the, the arguments of people with different kinds of critical theories you know, I, I like to, to steal man them, and then often on on Twitter, people will assume that this means I am endorsing them, and then I get a load of of things coming down on me. So, but the the thing to do to to fully understand this, um, the 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 opposing views, and there are a variety of them. I, I was reading some of Tigress's work 
earlier, and and she differs um, significantly from somebody like Charlotte Cooper um, or Kathleen Lebesco, who is sort of coming from a queer angle. And I think we've actually done quite a lot of the the principle of charity. I have not been Mm. as critical of fat activism as I I often am because Mm. I agree with a lot of the issues around prejudice, around discrimination. Mm. And so I agree with, with, with that side of it. I would just like fat activism to be more inclusive of people mm. who don't want to be mm. to mm. be fat. You know, when, when I listen to you, one of the things that comes across is m- my sense is, and, and I just wanted to test this with you, that you are very analytical. When I've looked at some of, you know, some of your work, you really are incredibly considered. And I always wonder in the ability to listen to the other idea sometimes, do you think because you are so, well, let me let me make a judgment here, or not a judgment, but an orientation. Because you are in your head thinking a lot about the intellectual robustness of the alternative, sometimes you may lose a sense of feeling of what it feels like to be on the other side, meaning some of the discrimination. So sometimes you can listen with your head, but not your heart, I suppose is my question. That certainly is the case. I don't think that because I am an analytical thinker i i am particularly inclined towards doing that and that's not generally a criticism that that people mm-hmm. that make of me sort of being too charitable is to the point of of tolerating the intolerant is is more likely to be but i think we we distinguish here between understanding and agreeing. So I can see that if you accept that the premises of certain sort of worldviews as true, then you would be absolutely right. So if there are these oppressive discourses um, that are white supremacist, patriarchal, fatphobic, transphobic, that are running through society, permeating the way we speak about absolutely everything, and most people aren't aware of them, which is a, a thing that, that underlies an awful lot of the critical social justice activism. You mean the unconscious that. bias? Yes, I, I take that from Oslem uh, Sensoy and, and Robin D'Angelo, critical social justice. If you take that, then the reason why that people want to change discourse, perhaps ban some ways of speaking, promote other ways of speaking to the point of being authoritarian about it, becomes very clear because they you need to change the way people are talking, to change the way they are thinking, to change mm. the systems mm. in society. So I can I can see the the reasoning that that is happening. Mm here and it would work if if the premise was correct i don't Mm. think the premise is correct i think social reality is more complex than that i think there are a number of different discourses running through society and that's somewhere where tigress and i think i think have been coming at things from a different angle and i i I think of this as a sort of a a perception of the status quo so Mm. where tigress is looking at the status quo as general society attitudes to fat people and and, and need to push back at that with a with more sort of um, positivity to encourage acceptance i'm looking at the status quo among fat activists and people who advocate for fat people which is not very tolerant of people wanting to lose weight or Mm. advocating medical science tigress 
coming back to you as an activist, as head of NAFA, having to listen to alternative views that may be sometimes I assume very hurtful, sometimes you feel are not based on, on evidence. What do you think you could do to be a better listener from your point of view? Well, I, I want to tell you a place where I'm a little bit caught on some of what Helen is saying about mm, what effort. about what fat activists are and what the status quo is of fat activism, because it feels like that's coming from more of exposure to the fat studies folks who tend to be more academic. And one of the things that I hope I do well as the chair of NAFA is have fingers in lots of different sort of sub communities of fat life. And I don't think all fat activists approach things the same way. So sorry, can I just clarify, you mean, they are potentially more tolerant than some of the activists that Helen has experienced or attempted to expose in her grievance studies. I, I think so. And I, I also think that, and maybe this is not Helen, maybe this is just something I've seen with lots of other folks when they do the sort of like, the fat activists all came for me kind of thing. What they're really yeah. often talking about is fat influencers, not fat activists, because they're yeah. talking about yeah. a thing that happens in, the, in, in a social media space where like, I will then look at that and like, none of the people who are coming for you are people I identify as fat activists or that I see as my peers, right? right. So like everybody who speaks on, everybody who speaks presents themselves as being fat positive is not necessarily coming from a fat liberation framework. I'm just not going to listen to some people who are in opposition to fat activism because it's very clear to me that their actual motivation is not to help fat people. It is just to espouse hatred towards fat people. It mm. is very clear to me, even though Helen and I disagree on some of some approaches, that there is like that Helen's motivation is thinking about what she thinks is best for fat people. We just disagree about what that is in terms of the medical establishment in particular. But I think that like working hard to make sure that I am balancing when to care about the motivations of people who disagree with me and, and when their motivations are irrelevant because of their impact on me and the community I represent, like trying to balance that. Looking at their intention, is one of the ways that you sort of anchor yourself on better listening as I well. I try to. I am sure <laughs> that I can have more opportunities to practice yeah. that. I try. I work really hard to make sure that I am not only preaching to the choir, that I am talking to folks who don't already believe what I believe and mm. listening to folks who don't already believe what I believe, mm. Mm. but I can always do with a refresh of like mm. more opportunities to be in dialogue with folks like Helen who have a different approach, but who... I think some people present their well-meaning and it's just disingenuous. Like they just really have a right. profit margin motivation or they really yep. are, you know, the sort of like dude bro podcasters who really are just looking for an yep. excuse to talk negatively about fat women in particular, you know, that kind of thing. But everybody who disagrees with me is not that, right? And so I think seeking out more opportunities to have the kind of dialogue that Helen and I have had today, I think is something that, that would increase my skills in that way. You know, ha having been an activist myself, one of the things I struggled with is when people disagree with you, trying to hold on to the view that they may be right. Mm -hmm. And you may be wrong. Is that is that something that sort of 
enters into your head it, or, or is that or you just do you just get caught up in the emotion of the argument well it enters to, no yes and no <laughs> yes i get caught up in the emotion of the argument sometimes but what i try to do especially because i have a leadership role i'm not just representing yeah. myself i'm representing yeah. an organization i'm representing a community to some people i'm representing the whole movement i think a lot of the activists that helen is talking about would actually say nafa is not re- representative of the movement nafa has been you know sort of defaulted as a proxy for the movement in ways that we don't think they are the movement so you know you this might have gone completely different if you'd had somebody from a different fat organization mm. than nafa mm. Mm. but i i do think that I, I try to to be able to actually hear people, and if I need to do my processing, do my processing not directly mm-hmm. in that moment, so that mm-hmm. I'm not only responding from emotion. I don't think emotion has no place in this. In the same way that I, you know, I don't think poetry has no place in this. Helen, I'm going to send you some fat poets that I really want you to read and listen to. Oh God, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But and you can and you can send me something too. Like I'm going to send you some fat poets that I really want you to read and listen to. Not instead okay. of science, in addition to science, right? So this um, is the heart. And I, this is the heart. And I'm inviting you to send me something that you want me to read or listen to uh, besides your work. Because I'm already checking out your work because we're here together today. What else do you wish that I would would hear? A podcast, a book, or whatever, you know, that you wish would I would be more exposed to your perspective? And then, you know, maybe in a non-public setting, we can just continue these kind of dialogues between the two of us. Tigress, I'm going to stop there. This is our fifth season, our fifth season of this podcast. You are the first person who's proactively (laughs) encouraged somebody to do so. So fantastic. And that's exactly what we impart about. Helen, uh, did you want to respond very briefly? Yes. You're asking the question, how could we listen better? And Mm. obviously everybody can always listen better. But I think that that this is a problem mostly for people who are ideologically locked in. And when Tigris was saying that her views are, are different from some of the other fat activists, she's absolutely right. So the fact that, that Tigris came here today, for example, is very uh, different. A lot of the other activists would not speak to me in, in public because they would be then seen, seeing themselves as amplifying fat phobic views, um, validating them. Um, and so when Tigris comes at, at things from the attitude of wanting to get different perspectives, understanding how, how other people think, and not being prepared to listen to some people who are quite blatantly not interested in the well-being of anyone, when she recognises my good intentions and I recognise hers, then I think we are, you know, we're looking at a situation in which we are actually both quite quite open and i i realized this on on reading tigress's mm. work as as well she's not taking these mm. dogmatic lines she is looking at different mm. stances on things and some of the things that you're, you're quite right you, you would be considered problematic mm. by some fat activists <laughs> that, well, that it's, I it's, it's, it's interesting <laughs> helen to that point i mean emil and i have often had this conversation it's not always easy to get activists onto the principle of charity because they are very worried about their own community criticizing them and it's almost there's a fundamentalism that exists within that community that they go well i'm, I'm not allowed to say that so so there's enormous amount of restriction but mm. helen just for our listeners because tigress has referred to it in our introduction i spoke a little bit about your background around the grievance studies affair 
And particularly, you know, as I understood what that affair and the project around that was, which was to highlight poor scholarship and and the erosion of standards in a number of academic fields, whether, you know, cultural, queer, race, gender, but particularly on fat studies. Can you just tell us a little bit about the paper and very briefly that uh, around fat studies and what, you know, for our listeners, what, what project was about? and what you attempted to do and what you found. I mean, we got together at the what we considered the least worthy scholarship in areas of identity, the, the scholarship that was not serving the interests of greater social equality, some of the least ethical ideas, some of the least, I say, evidence-based epistemology and consistently liberal ethics. That's, that's my, my sense where I'm coming from. So that project was to bring together a lot of the the worst ideas that were out there and then sort of use them to make more sort of blatantly false claims as well as advocate for unethical things. Say, for example, I think the simplest to understand is the dog park paper in which we made ridiculous claims that by examining incidents of dog humping, then asking the dog owners about their sexuality, then randomly applying black feminist criminology to it, then shredding our data, we could coherently argue that nightclubs are rape condoning spaces and that we should perhaps train men like dogs with, you know, um, and it's a pity you couldn't use something like electric collars. This is completely incoherent, but it, it brings together a whole load of other of other things. And that article got accepted. Yes. It got accepted into an academic journal. Yeah, Gender, Place and, and, and Culture, that's the top feminist geography journal, and it also got an award for exceptional scholarship. But the other ones as well, another one that, that was advanced, that it was, was doing well, but we, we got found before it went into completion. Our progressive stack paper was was arguing for changes in in education which were which were thoroughly unethical. We we were advocating that that people were graded by their students were graded by their identity, and then there was the kind of experiential reparations. So when men when boys tried to make an argument for anything, they would just be talked down and not believed, as um, women have historically been. Um, white kids were to um, sort, of, sort of sit on, on the floor in chains as a way of and not be involved as a, as a way of experiencing the whole sort of being second-class status. And when we tried to argue, um, because we thought that, if that might be going a bit too far, and we tried to argue this would actually be good for, for the white kids, we, we got back the response, stop centering white feelings, you know, and that this is all great and I, this is uh, brilliant for, for pedagogy. It, it, did that article get accepted? No, that that was on a, a revise and resubmit. So we had positive comments. Oh, a resubmit. Yeah, okay. but we, we got caught. So they, they, they didn't actually publish that one, but we mm. were following their advice as to how to mm. improve it, and their advice mm. was quite... Mm. was quite worrying. So so we were trying to show why we think this these studies are shoddy in their evidence, gathering mm-hmm. their data, mm-hmm. gathering. We, we, we presented data that was actually impossible, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. drew conclusions from it that weren't warranted. Have you been threatened regularly as a result of the grievance studies? When I was in, in Portland, I was, yes. There were regular mm-hmm. meetings with the, the, the police then, which death threats were, were credible. Feces 
smeared on on things that you know that we had to have bodyguards, um, the police, to escort us, us out. Activists damaged the sound equipment mm. in the middle of it to, to try to stop it. And, and at that point, all we were arguing was that. It, it was women in tech, and there were four events going on about mm. how to get more women in tech. And our panel was about accepting that differences in interests exist on average, and then need to take that into account if you want to get more women in tech. Principle of charity is, you know, partly we are attempting to allow people to have a voice on different opinions. Have you started to unconsciously restrict your voice because of fear? Um, unconsciously, no. I I had a complete nervous breakdown because of it and disappeared for several months. I mm. got a, a diagnosis. My my psychiatrist at first thought I might be suffering from paranoia, and mm. then I showed him my mm. inbox, and in, and then he ruled out paranoia and suggested I call the police. Mm. So yeah, that I I I I had a, a yeah a con a complete. Mm. <laughs> breakdown be, yeah. because of, of it and I you know it for, for mm. me particularly because I am on the left I then there are there are conservatives who feel that that I have betrayed them by by not being conservative mm. because I uh, they, they assume I am because I criticize this kind of mm. Mm. Uh, theory so I have them coming at me at the same time as mm. I have the critical social justice activists mm. coming at mm. me. Mm. Mm. And it, it is rather intense. Well, can I can I ask a clarifying question about just since we were talking about this in the context of this episode, which is about weight stuff, was part of this project a critique specifically of like the Fat Studies journals or Fat Studies scholarship or like, or Helen, is this just part of part of your story and it's not really related to the weight stuff? Or is there a connection there that is more direct than what I'm hearing as we're talking about it? Right we got an article published in the Fat Studies Journal. Mm-hmm. They accepted one. That one wasn't actually one that, that came from my theoretical perspective. I, I would have gone at, at, at it What was the article, Helen? Um, fat body building. We, we were arguing that people admire bodies built with muscle but not bodies built with fat because of inherent fat phobia and that um, advising, I don't know if you know about the, the Fat Olympics that, that happened here in the UK. I do. Um, yeah, so uh, ad- advising, uh, re- recommending non-competitive display of fat bodies alongside uh, muscular bodies. And as I say, I, I would have come at it more from a, a, a queer theory angle. But the thing in that is the... The way it it went into bodybuilding culture and, and completely just um, misrepresented how that that works. I had seen a, a, a short interview of you talking about this, but I didn't know it was um, sort of part of that whole project. But it's fascinating to me in terms of timing because I literally was uh, thinking about this at the airport just on on my last trip was just a few days ago. It was the first time in a long time that I've had to walk the entire distance of a plane and watch everybody's faces, watch the fat disabled lady come down the aisle. And I was just thinking about the way in which people's reaction to a person who's too big for a plane because they are too muscular is very different than their reaction to a person who's too big, in quote, too big mm-hmm. for a plane because they are because they are fat. So it's just it's very mm-hmm. interesting to me the timing of of hearing this as something that was sort of put up. It, it sounds like 
you know, the premise is like, this is such an absurd thing to talk about. Let's see if this journal will buy it. When in fact, it doesn't seem like, I I don't know how exactly it was presented, but the concept itself does not seem absurd to me at all. It actually seems pretty relevant. So Mm. it's interesting. Well, if if, if we're going to communicate, we're going into the internet in more detail that I I think, yes, you are. I mean, I I, I recently also had had reason to feel like that because I was sitting in a, a a seat watching a, a comedy show next to a friend who is particularly muscular and his shoulders were expanding outside his seat and my bottom was expanding outside the seat and I was oh, we should not be sitting next mm-hmm. to each other let's get the skinny person in the middle <laughs> Yeah, seating is always uh, seating is always one of the the access challenge, but attitude about what it means to other people to see you get accommodations for seating is also also uh, really a way to to see anti fatness in action sometimes, and also to see sometimes kindness in action. You know, so uh, it's very interesting to see who thinks you deserve accommodation versus who thinks it's uh, a travesty that you are getting accommodation when you quote unquote did this to yourself. You know, I've been doing this for a long time, and I and I do it on behalf of an organization. Now I have a lot of tools in my toolbox emotionally and practically for managing these things out in the world that other, you know, fat folks just are in the wild experiencing these things and don't have, you know, can't call up the place and be like, do you know you did this to the chair of the world's oldest fat rights organization? So I I carry something a little bit differently with me when I am reacting to these situations than what what everybody else has but hope hopefully i do that in a way that helps advocate for everybody else too mm. um but anyway i know you wanted to ch- sort of transition into nafa culture so maybe that's a good way to do it i'm gonna just got two questions and then if you don't mind we're gonna start to close off but i do have a very small game to lighten up a little uh before we close which we always play but very quickly uh tigress read nafa culture and in the context of principle of charity how do you deal with debate within NAFA? I mean, I assume as an activist organization, people have very, very different views. Sometimes they're always, as in every organization, in religion, any organization, there's always the risk of breakaways because people feel they haven't been listened to. Yes. As the leader of NAFA, how do do you deal uh, and hold your organization together and be more charitable to some of the differences within NAFA? Well, you know, it's, I mean, across 54 years of history as an organization, there have been all kinds of disagreements, personal and political disagreements, both within NAFA and between NAFA and other aspects of the fat activist movement. You know, as we talked about earlier, there are folks who would not, you know, who who really strongly believe that NAFA is overrepresented in terms of people's belief of what fat, fat activism is. And so there are lots of differences of opinions you know, it's not the organization for everyone. We are, even though I and I would say the majority of the board member lean uh, uh, lean towards radical fat politics, that's not, we don't lean the organization as far towards radical as some other fat organizations. And that's by intention, because I think we need a space for people to enter activism who are not radical or who are not yet radical yet. And so we, and we get, we will get criticism for that. We will be, get criticism from people in our, in our own community and in the greater sort of fat liberation community for not being radical enough. And on the flip side, we will get it for being too radical. There are folks who don't like it that we're talking about queer rights. There are folks who don't like it that, that, um, I'm black and I'm talking about, you know, people of color and centering super Mm -hmm. fat people Mm -hmm. and, you know, all of that, that stuff. 
NAFA has a long history of having had lots of environment from folks who I uh, folks who are not fat but identify as fat admirers, and that's controversial. Some people think that's a great way to build allyship. Other people think that is centering the feelings of thin people, especially thin yeah. cisgender men, too much. And so we're always trying to figure out like what's the balance of you know the folks who do still use the word obese. We do that. We don't use that word in our work unless we're using it critically. Or I like to use the phrase glorifying obesity because they like to use the, the trolls like to use that against us. But we generally, you know, we we have arguments about language. We have feedback about what we're doing too much of, what we're not doing enough of. Should we be working? We start a partnership with Dove. Some people think that's amazing. Some people think that, you know, uh, you sold out to the corporations with all the stuff. So you've got all these conflict, as with any political, social activist organization, the same sort of debates, yeah. meaning debates about how to hold things together, who you should ally with, partner with, who all you of it. Be tougher on. Yeah. And the best that we can do is like. But you've been going for 54 years. So we've you, been you going, managed to hold it together. Well, uh, we've been going, and uh, we're going in a little bit different of a direction than we were going for most yep. of those years. Yep. We are yep. a much yep. more intersectional organization now than we were mm. for the majority of that history. Mm. You know, we're doing more partnership work with organizations from other communities, you know, next, uh, next we're doing some work with little people of America because we do care about height and weight. And we're trying to learn more about each other's organizations. We're, you know, doing more work with disability rights groups, racial justice groups. And like, and so we are operating differently, but that is part of how we figure out when we have conflict. Part of what we are doing is trying to take things back to our mission and take things back to our values and always be willing to actually entertain the questions. You know, you asked earlier about medical stuff. Do you ever worry that they might be right? I worry all the time that there are things that might be right. I don't think the whole medical establishment is right about fat, but there are aspects that I wonder and worry about whether they are right. And I want to keep engaging with those questions. And the same is true when we get criticism about what we're doing as an organization or when I anticipate criticism about what I'm doing as the organization's leader, that I want to be open to considering the questions and I want to surround myself with some folks who will really genuinely challenge me on the questions, not just tell me what I want to hear. Thank you. We're going to end off with a very brief game. Hopefully both of you are up for it. We always play this game. Uh, It's called net positive, net negative. You have to be very quick. It's free association. I'm going to give you something. If you're comfortable, you just need to say net positive, net negative, and maybe one or two reasons why. And we'll just move on. So if you are you both yes. up for it? <laughs> okay. Helen, I'm gonna start with you. The American Constitution. Net positive or net negative? Net positive, but it needed to live up to its all men are created equal thing better. Okay. Tigress, JK Rowling. Um net net positive, I say with reluctance. There's a lot of problematic stuff in in J.K. Rowling's work and mm-hmm. in J.K. Rowling's beliefs to me. Um, mm-hmm. And also, I think there's a theme of love that runs through the books and movies. And a lot of the other people who've worked on those projects carry on that theme of love. And that's where the net positive comes in for me. Great. Thank you. Beautiful. Helen, organized religion. Um, net negative. I, I, I think uh, now I... I I, I think sort of anything that sort of encourages people to believe in a a sort of whole sort of um, explanation of of everything and and see others as 
you know, uh, as some some kind of, of of different tribe, and is is a problem. And plus, also the tendency for uh, established um, organized religions um, when it comes to women and LGBT rights. Right. Thank you, Tigress. Other eaters anonymous. Twelve step. Program. I'm not sure. I'm specific. I, I'm not. Don't think I know them well enough to say. Give, give us your gut. I would say net negative because I think that the the focus on intentional weight loss instead of other kinds of health practices is a net negative. Mm. Okay. Helen, McDonald's. Ne- negative. It's um, just, you know, sort of pushing out other kinds of um, food outlets. It's um, a sort of big sort of global empire almost. It's, um, and it, it's, it, it's, it's not healthy food. Okay. Tigress. Elon Musk. Net negative. Why? No one should have amassed that kind of wealth and hold it as one individual. Okay. Helen, pornography. Yeah, this, this again, is a, I'd have to say net negative because I I think in the, the history of the world there's been too much sort of uh, misery involved in it, but that doesn't mean that, you know, there are not um, ethical ways for um, people to engage in, in sex work of any kind okay. without shame. Tigress, the movie The Whale. Net negative. Why? I think it's misery porn. I think the lack of involvement of a wide variety of fat perspectives shaped that movie. So I know that there were fat people consulted, but they were all uh, provided to the production crew from an anti-obesity organization. And I just think you can't make something that is nuanced about fat people if you only talk to one kind of fat person. Thank you. Helen, positive discrimination or action? Net positive. Um, but uh, with, oh, I'm surprised with at certain... that. Okay, from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, with with certain uh, provisos, you know, when when we we have gone to to sort of re programs for sort of people from socially economically deprived backgrounds, which often in places like 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 America comes from, you know, have a historical racism and things like that. Having these programs in place, I just see it uh, at the bottom. I don't approve of positive discrimination that evens things up at the end and then puts people in, selects people by quotas, but putting more funding into underprivileged single ethnicity areas um, to, and and, um, having special programs uh, for uh, certain communities that that will sort of get them into things, internships, scholarships. Yes, I'm I'm all for that. Last one to your tigress. Using shame against people who discriminate against fat people. Net negative, even though it is tempting sometimes to use any means necessary to prevent the atrocious treatment of fat people in this culture. I I want to sink to the level of using the same tactics that other mm. people do, but I ultimately think it's important for us not to do that. And on that note, I want to thank both of you. It has been phenomenal. Uh, Thank you for your generosity, for your intellect, for your honesty. Remarkable. I hope both of you, it would seem, will continue the conversation without us. So thank you for for sharing. And uh, Emil, any final words from you? I've learned an enormous amount uh, listening to you both and doing the research and really 
it's, it's everything we hoped out of the principle of charity to have people with different views with some crossover with with good faith which is the topic we we discussed actually last time uh, what what actually good faith means can you use the principle of charity if you're not engaged with good faith actors which you brought up tigress and it's been great to see it, it all play out thanks so much yeah thank you thank you for having us If you enjoyed today's conversation, please rate us and leave a review. That is simply the best way to support the show and help it grow. And before we go, here's a quick word from our partners at The Ethics Centre. The Ethics Centre is an independent not-for-profit that for over 30 years has advocated for a more ethical society. We're a proud partner of this podcast and its spirit of curiosity and generosity. Through all our work, we bring people together create space for difficult conversations and encourage all to live and act according to their values. Check out our website for free access to articles, podcasts and videos that unpack the complexities of everyday life at www.ethics.org.au. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.